Father, I come before you right now and I ask for an opening of your word. I ask for an opening of our hearts to see this uh, simply profound calling that, that you put upon your people, your creation. Your creation that currently groans, Lord, in, in childbirth pangs for the revealing of the sons of God, for the lifting of the curse forever. We thank you. You've sent your good spirit to lead us. You sent your spirit to stir us, to call us on. And we ask you, Lord, Holy Spirit, the Lord himself, bring the freedom of, of Jesus in this place. To us with unveiled faces. And for the ones who may even have their eyes blinded by the God of this age even still. Lord, I ask for you to lift that veil. That Messiah would be seen as beautiful tonight. The face of Jesus. The glory of God in the face of Jesus be revealed tonight. Even to us who believe in a deeper measure. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 So we're, we're called to be pilgrims, and the Holy Spirit is, is the seal of the covenant of the promises of God, past and into the future. The past things fulfilled in the Messiah, now pushing forward to the final promises that, that God will fulfill. He will keep His word. He will not break one of the promises. He hasn't, and He won't, including... His people Israel. From the beginning, He had a covenant through Abraham to all the nations. And He preached the gospel in Abraham, as it says in, in Romans 4. And He promised a specific geographical land to a specific ethnic people by the election of His grace. He chose them. Not because they were large, not because they deserved anything, but because he wanted to make his name known in the, in the earth. And he chose a people called Israel. And when he called them out of Egypt, so you got Abraham, and he had, he had Isaac, and then uh, Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And when Jacob became Israel and moved into Egypt, then God called them out of Egypt after their slavery, which he promised to Abraham. He, he promised Abraham the land and the covenant forever. And then on top of that, he said, your people will be in Egypt for 400 years. So he promised them hardship on top of promising them the blessing of the land forever. And in doing so, he called Moses to deliver them. And how many of you remember, Moses is praying before the Lord, and he says, God, if you don't go up with us, how will the world know we're your people? That was one of the first mentions of the Holy Spirit. And clearly he's the Spirit of Covenant in that sense. Setting apart his pilgrim people who were about to wander through wilderness for 40 years and be disciplined. And unfortunately and sadly, many of them fell in the wilderness. Very few made it through. But he was the Spirit of Covenant that identified them as the people of God. And he's still the Spirit of Covenant. Now, the interesting thing is, the Spirit in the Old Testament is always also linked to something else. Something called the Day of the Lord. And the Scripture is so clear. If you could, in one hand, hold the promises of God that will never be null and void, that He'll never fail, that He'll always keep, on the other hand, you realize that there's warnings in Scripture, that there's a day coming where if you don't find mercy in God, that you'll be judged in the day of the Lord. So this thing is coming to an end, this thing we call life. So this spirit of the covenant is also a spirit of a, of a pilgrim marking. God is calling out a people to follow Him, to be pilgrims in this earth. Commonly, we, we throw out the phrase, this earth is not our home. More accurately, we could put out, this age is not our home. Because the earth will be renewed because God promised that. God made the earth good. He's not changing His mind. He's going to restore the earth. He's going to restore the heavens and the earth together. So His promises are never null and void. 
nor are His warnings. His warnings that there is a day coming. And when the Spirit was given, there was also the warning of the day of the Lord, when it was prophesied, I should say. In Joel chapter 2, we have Joel 2 verse 28. Peter mentions in Pentecost that this is partially fulfilled in that day. It says in Joel verse 28 chapter 2, It will come about after this, after what? After the locust plague. He says, I will put my spirit on all mankind, pour it on on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on my male and female servants, I'll pour my spirit in those days. And I'll display wonders in the sky, on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. It's like Egypt. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So, um, the survivors that the Lord calls, the, the, the remnant, the people that make it through the tribulation, is what he's speaking about. The people that actually survive the difficulty of the wilderness, of the sword, etc. But notice, it's the giving of the Spirit in connection with the day of the Lord. When Jesus came on the scene, through John the Baptist first, what did John the Baptist say? What was his message? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And then what did he go out in the wilderness and preach? Or at the baptism, what did he preach? Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. All he is doing is dovetailing off of the prophets. The day of the Lord is coming. So when he says the kingdom of God is coming, or at hand, he's simply re-emphasizing what the prophet said about the day of the Lord coming. God's day of judgment. That's why it's urgent to repent and believe in the work of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. It become more clear. That's why John the Baptist was the preparatory baptism that the Jewish people wouldn't boast in Abraham in the wrong way, but that they would find faith in God, no righteousness in their own, and be baptized in the River Jordan. And to them, that was humiliating because they thought, well, we're already the Jewish people. But he wanted inward Jews. He wanted the Jews to be born of the Spirit. So John the Baptist was a preparatory uh, baptism for them to understand their need for righteousness in Messiah. So Jesus preached that. He passed it on to, to His apostles. The Holy Spirit came, and the Holy Spirit just magnified even more the reality that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's drawing near. The day of the finality of God's judgment is drawing near. So the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, right? Of righteousness and judgment. And the Holy Spirit provokes people to live for righteousness sake. It's the seal of the age to come. Of the righteousness of the age to come. So it's a taste of the age to come. It's the deposit and the pledge that God's going to change our body as much as He's already changed our heart by the Spirit to obey Him. He's going to change our body. It's the first fruits. So, the famous passage that we think of with the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor, to unbind the captives, to open the eyes of the blind, to raise up the lame, etc. And then he says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Well, if you notice when Jesus was preaching, he stopped right there, right? You know what the next verse, or next half of the verse is, anybody? Yeah, yeah. The vengeance of our God. That was in connection again. And Jesus paused, letting them know He was going to be doing the first part of the work. The the favorable day of the Lord. The year of the Lord. And waiting for the day of judgment. So the Holy Spirit was given to Messiah. And then Messiah poured it out on us. After He fulfilled all righteousness and obedience for us. So now the Holy Spirit convicts of sin 
for they don't believe in Him, of righteousness, because He's with the Father exalted. He's the, 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 he's the um, proof that we don't have. He's the intercessor. We're to look to Him for righteousness, for obedience. Uh, our righteousness is wrapped up in Jesus' obedience. We don't have anything to offer Him in the way of obedience unless it's by the Holy Spirit causing us to look to Jesus for our righteousness. It's, it's the most confrontational thing to a human being. We want to be able to offer something. Uh, the phrase that's often thrown around is, it's all about God, right? It's all about God, it's not about me. But here's our challenge. We usually agree with that up until the point of this issue of righteousness. We're always trying to offer God our righteousness. All the while, what is it? It's filthy rags to Him. Our righteousness is filthy rags. We don't have anything to offer Him but repentance and faith. And to receive His grace. To receive God's grace is uh, a confrontation to any claim of righteousness that we might have on our own. And so the giving of the Holy Spirit is a calling out of a pilgrim people that are really living before God's eyes now to prepare themselves to be His in the end. And the challenge is, a lot of times um, we've kind of had this idea, or we've been taught, or we've kind of went along with the idea that the Holy Spirit is kind of um, the coddler rather than the comforter. And the thing about the Holy Spirit being called the Comforter from the lips of Jesus in John 14, 15, 16 is that He's the one that's called alongside. It's a military term of being in the foxhole trenches of life. And you've got your companion who comes alongside you and strengthens you. The standby, the intercessor, the paraclete, the come alongside. And He fortifies you. He strengthens you. And He strengthens you in the way of living righteously and proclaiming the truth. Because proclaiming the truth is difficult. That's why Jesus said, wait in the city until the Holy Spirit clothes you with power. Because He had told them to go preach repentance. I mean, you need power to preach repentance to people. To tell people that they don't have any righteousness and they need it from Jesus, it takes power. For more reasons than one. Obviously, first of all, it's challenging to overcome our fears. But also, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit that will do it in the right way, right? He gives us love in our heart. So that we're not going... We realize we're a human speaking to a human on behalf of God. That's a heavy-duty call. I'm a human, and I'm coming to you a human, but I want to persuade you on behalf of God. I don't want to skirt around the issue and just expect you're going to know that my Christian smile shows me that I love Jesus. Words are necessary for the gospel. Jesus said the gospel is repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. He didn't change that. The apostles took that up. We need to take that up because the day of the Lord is at hand. It still hasn't happened. So, the spirit of the covenant, speaking ahead to the day of the Lord, calling us to be pilgrims and to proclaim to others as pilgrims to join us as pilgrims. There's about 35 scriptures we could look at, but before I do that, any of the scriptures, not 35, uh, here's the thing. Typically, when we think of the Holy Spirit, we tend to magnify, number one, experience, an experience with God. That seems to be the first thing in our mind that we think of when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Generally, the next thing people think of is the gifts. By emphasis is what I'm saying. Our experience, our emphasis, our focus. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. Then it's fruit. And then it's this thing called the foretaste or the deposit. Or the pledge. When, I would argue, if you flip it on its head, the emphasis of the Holy Spirit that makes it make sense for our praxis or our lifestyle is he's the deposit of the age to come he's the foretaste of the fullness of resurrection our bodies are going to have so that we produce fruit by the spirit 
to offer Jesus in the day of the Lord, so that, out of that, we will offer edifying gifts to the body to strengthen them in their pilgrimage. And out of that, we have an experience with God in knowing Him and knowing His people. We tend to kind of blow up, if you will, in the experience. It's almost like we got tires with no tread. We're waiting for the Holy Spirit blast. But for what? <laughs> we got tires that have no tread. We're spinning out on the snow. But when we realize the Holy Spirit anchors us in what's to come, it's a foretaste of the good promises of God that will come about in full when Jesus returns. Because every promise is yes and amen in Him. It gives us a traction like big wheels with perfect tread and chains on them so nothing's going to stop them to trudge through this life as a pilgrim, hell or high water, whatever comes our way, we've got traction because we know where this thing's going and we're set on our course and we're strengthened with all might by God's Spirit to pursue righteousness, to provoke others to it, to resist the temptation to fear and to try to produce our own righteousness. There's two major enemies to our thinking as believers, they go back to the Bible itself, and they're still current today. They always will be, because human beings are the same. Age after age after age, inherently in themselves, they're the same. The expression might look different, the terms might be different, the cultures may be different, times change. But here's the thing. There's two sides to self-righteousness. There's the legalistic attempt to prove yourself to God, and then there's a, the liberal side of trying to prove yourself to God or trying to change the game, the game-changing uh, uh, mindset. One is called self-righteous legalism, and one is called Gnosticism. And they're still current to our day, and it could be more clear that when we think of the Holy Spirit, that overall, as the church, we really are still tainted with Gnosticism. Paul addressed Gnosticism in 1 Corinthians and Colossians very extensively. Very extensively. Especially, it was specific to 1 Corinthians. Here's what Gnosticism basically entails. There's an elite kind of people that can come to a deep kind of secret of knowledge, and they're the special people. But it's an attainment of people. And there's... Something, what it does is it takes the word and it says there's deep secrets that God still wants to reveal His people. There's no deep secret that is still remaining for the people of God to know. Except if it's maybe something along the lines of how to understand the times of the end that we're in. Like it says of Daniel and in Revelation. There's understanding that's going to happen in these last days for our endurance for our endurance in righteousness. But the Bible was written by fishermen, for fishermen, if you will, for the simple, to understand a simple overview, a simple history, the simple plan of God. Clear and simple. If we can take it as a child, the Bible is easy to interpret. There's wranglings over certain things that don't need to be wranglings. Well, we can take it as a child would take it. So, in this idea of Gnosticism comes this idea of secret knowledge, elite attainment, and then either, there was two sides to it, either it didn't matter what you did, eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die, kind of a fatalistic hedonism. Just eat up and live up, you live once. Or, an ascetic Gnosticism, where you kind of had rules of do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, cut yourself, do whatever it takes to put to death this body by your own efforts, and then find that divine spark come forth in you. Some kind of a divine spark, a Greek kind of mentality that we could all be divine. Now, you wouldn't call it Gnosticism in our day and age. You would call it kingdom now. Kingdom now. And kingdom now comes in small to extreme packages. Here's the simplicity of it all. Is Jesus God and man? 
Is he man still forever? Yeah, right? And he's sitting where right now? The right hand of the Father. What's he waiting for? Until all the kingdoms are under his feet. Amen. There we go. He's waiting for all kingdoms and all enemies to be under his feet. Now, if the king's not here, how could the kingdom be here? Well, that's the, the common phrase that people take for the kingdom to say, like John or Luke 17 says, the kingdom's within us or in our midst, amongst us. But interesting enough, who was Jesus talking to in that when he said that? But the Pharisees. And they were asking, is it going to come suddenly? Is it going to come? And, and Jesus said, the, uh, the kingdom is in your midst. What he's saying is Daniel 2.44. When the kingdom of God comes, it will smash all other kingdoms and set up in the midst of the people. So he's saying the kingdom comes in the midst because the next two verses say, because the day of the Son of Man will be like lightning across the sky. And he exhorts them, don't go out to the wilderness when people say they're the Messiah. Because when the day comes, it's going to be in, unmistakable. It's going to come with lightning. Because Daniel 2.44 hasn't changed. It says in Daniel 2.44, actually, speaking of the promises of God, it says, it will not be given to another people. In other words, the promise to Israel remains, which is consistent with all the Scripture. So this issue of the kingdom, it's a messianic kingdom, starting with the promise in Genesis 3.15 of crushing the serpent, the promise to David, of he'll have a man on his throne, his seed forever will reign. And it goes to Abraham with the land, and it's given to the Jews, and all nations will be blessed through Abraham in the gospel of grace through the everlasting covenant. But Jesus came on the scene, and he fulfilled everything except tabernacles of God dwelling with man forever, and trumpets, the final trumpet of his return and you could say he didn't fully fulfill the day of atonement yet because the day of atonement will be when he actually comes and puts away sin Hebrews 9.27 for all those who long for salvation and when Israel looks upon their Messiah whom they pierced and repents so you see that the promises of God have not failed because he promised to give adoption to give his spirit to give the covenants, to give Messiah according to the flesh to Israel. And the next two verses in Romans 9, 5, and 6, he says, did the word of God fail? Because they're not all obeying and believing their Messiah. And he said, no, it didn't fail. But not all are Israel who are from Israel. But it's those who are regenerate, that have faith. But because God keeps His promises to Israel... He'll keep His promises to anyone who calls on His name. And, okay, so back to Gnosticism in the kingdom. Here's the thing. If the kingdom of God were here right now, do you know what that implies? That we have dominion. And Paul had a really strong word against us having dominion. Jesus does not yet have all His enemies under His feet. So Jesus has all dominion right now but is he exercising it in the earth I hope not because then he's not the Jesus that we would want to believe in then there wouldn't be cancer there wouldn't be sickness but what they knew again of the Holy Spirit on Messiah was that he would heal the lame etc but they linked that to Messiah's reign his reign forever in righteousness so when John the Baptist had questions, is there another one coming? An additional one? Or are you the one? The one package deal? He said, tell John, the lame are healed, the eyes of the blind are open, and the poor get the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended at me. He said that to John, who was about to be killed, be martyred. 
And when he said that, he was saying, I am the Messiah from your scriptures. And they all would have known what he's talking about. But, in that, what was he saying? He was saying that, okay, I'm sorry, there, there's that train of thought that came back down the tracks. So here's the thing. God, in His sovereignty, hardened Israel, partially. Why? So that all the nations could come to know Him. So since He partially hardened Israel, they didn't see their Messiah to be their Messiah. Why? So that it all be by grace, and it all be by God's mercy. He sovereignly shut all humanity under disobedience so that He'd show mercy to all. So this kingdom is a Jewish kingdom still. It's a Jerusalem-centric kingdom that God will send up, set up over all the earth, centered in Jerusalem, because God doesn't break His promises. And the only way that that would change, and we could reinterpret what the Old Testament said, was if God changed His plan for Israel and absorbed Israel into what we call the church. Now here's the thing. When we do that, we can call the church the kingdom. We start to claim all the promises of Israel and deny all the curses of Israel. And we call ourselves the new Israel. And we call the church the kingdom. But I would argue that the Holy Spirit is the sign of the covenant people and He's not the kingdom. It's not the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. But the kingdom is to come. That's why we pray, Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And it's not this invisible, ongoing, growing force sweeping across the world. The Gospel is. The Word of God is. The Holy Spirit's work is. For the harvest. But the kingdom, the kingdom is not a positive term, per se. It's a negative term. Because we all know, if it's God's kingdom, then ours has to come down, we say, right? True. Definitely true. But here's the danger. Until we're in a resurrected body, in a fully redeemed state, we're prone to wander. So if the kingdom was here, and we could abuse it, and use it, and etherealize it, and make dominion in the earth, then it can be corrupted still. Because as a human being, power corrupts. So I'd argue that Christ crucified, the gospel, is our call in this age. If Jesus had to learn obedience to the point of death through what he suffered, how would we graduate that? Really. I mean, it's a nice, it's a good notion. It's a, it's a nice idea to think that Jesus suffered for us. That Jesus did everything difficult for us so that we could just have bliss in Him now and set up our kingdom now. But that doesn't make any sense for lots of practical reasons. If the kingdom of God is here, either we have to etherealize it down to some invisible force, which, understandably so, turns into a power trip for human beings. But, not only that, but the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin still shows us that we're not in dominion. Does that make sense? It's so important. It really is. Even the, the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power demonstration of the Spirit and power that Paul talks about. He's not talking about signs and wonders there. He's talking about His weakness strengthened by grace. He's talking about the fact that His crucified Savior that He follows is making Him like Him in weakness and fear and trembling so that others can approach Him and the power of the Spirit rests on Him, sustaining Him in this life, in His weakness, that others will be saved. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. Bring it home in the Scripture, because I, 
I know how easy it is to kind of lose a group in conversation here. And I don't want to lose you guys. I want to bring us home to let the Scriptures speak for themselves. But We need such a, a detox in the church. It's back to down to simplicity where we can look line upon line in the Scriptures and and see things that are so core and so essential. And understanding Israel affects everything in your scripture understanding. I mean, when something's mentioned 2,307 times in the Bible, and there's 2,376 verses in the Bible, some kind of significance about this word Israel. And when 2,276 are in the Old Testament, but there's still 73 in the New Testament, and only three are verses that people can look at and say, see, it's not really about Israel, it's about anybody. But when you see those three in context, and you realize he's still talking about ethnic Israel, who have faith, I'm telling you, it brings together all the core understandings of our faith. And when it does that, our lifestyle becomes so simply clear, laid out before us. Good theology and sound doctrine, which Paul exhorted the church to have, from the apostolic beginnings that Jesus gave them, if we can live simply in light of what the Scripture simply says, we'll have an obvious, clear, simple praxis or lifestyle that we're called to. But because our theology is so muddled and unclear and so tainted with Gnosticism and everything else, when we read the Word, we have a hard time just simply grasping it, and therefore our lifestyle is excused, ignored, and really discouraged, if you will. It's really discouraging to be a believer when you can't simply digest God's Word and say, okay, that's what I need to do. When you have to kind of theorize and wait for that that figurative experience that suddenly makes it click. Oh no, now, now I had the experience. Now I've attained to something. That's what we tend to do as a church. All the while missing the forest for the trees. So let's look at what Paul says about the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And before we can start with 2, since it is a letter... We can't go with the designated chapter separations. It just doesn't work. That's another thing that throws us off. It's a letter. Uh, He's making a couple points through the whole thing. Verse 26 of chapter 1 says, Consider your calling, brothers. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the Things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the key of what Paul is getting at here. If our Messiah, our captain, our leader, was crucified for obedience, then that's our pattern. If he was crucified for obedience, then it's a pattern. Peter said that. Follow the pattern, the footsteps of Jesus, who was reviled against but didn't revile in return. He was obedient to the point of death. He who's suffered death in the flesh is done with sin. New Testament pattern is so clear. Messiah's footsteps, suffering unto glory. First comes the afflictions of this life that produce in us glory. And Peter says, don't be confused. I'm not talking about suffering for thievery, for lying, for meddling in other people's business. But if you suffer as a Christian, you bear the name well. And the Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. 
You're going the right way when you suffer. You're doing the right thing when you're opposed. When persecution happens. Church, I would argue that here's our issue. We don't have a clear, vibrant, strong, bold witness of the day of the Lord and repentance. So therefore, we don't have opposition and persecution to provoke us. To do what? To pray for more boldness. To be able to lay down our lives. And really persuade people. We're supposed to persuade people that the day of the Lord's coming and that Christ was made righteousness for us because we don't have any. We're to persuade people. We really are. We get into this thinking that, well, I'm just going to live before them and give them an example and hopefully they turn. That could take years. And we better search our motives too. We're saving face, aren't we? I mean... Are we human? We're saving face when we say that. We're not, we don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want the repercussions. It's not love. It's fear. Don't fear those who can kill the body. But fear him who can throw body and soul into hell. Jesus said that to his 14 to 20 year old disciples. Who were following him. Boy, that's got to hit us home. He warned his disciples, formidable teenagers, don't fear people. He gave them like four warnings. Here you go, lambs, you're surrounded by wolves. Be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. Confess me before man, or I won't confess you before my father. I came to bring a sword. There's going to be opposition in your own home. Your mother, or your father, or your brother your son or your daughter, they may turn you in to the authorities and have you killed for following me. Fourteen-year-olds. Is that wise, Jesus? It sure is. It sure is. Mariana, you know about martyrdom, don't you? My kids watch movies about martyrdom. And they get it. And they're innocent little minds. They understand that it's because of obedience to Jesus that these things are going to happen. In our culture, we know the cyanide of our faith is comfort. It is. It's comfort. And the Holy Spirit's called the comforter to those who are living as pilgrims and aren't finding comfort in this world that's passing. The form of this world is passing away. Paul said that repeatedly. Constantly, the form of this age is passing away. It's passing away. And our only hope is to lose our life, to pine away on our cross, saying goodbye to the world. That's the pilgrim call. Only the Holy Spirit can do that in us. Only the Holy Spirit can make us suffer well. One of the favorite verses of people, right? Almost everybody's favorite verse. God did not give you a spirit of... Exactly, right? But of Power and love. love. What's the next verse? Looking for and no, that's Second Peter, but it's good. But therefore, suffer hardship for the gospel according to the power of God. All oh, the demonstration of the Spirit's power in our weakness. Always. Always. Whenever the Spirit's power is spoken of, it's about our weakness. Not about miracles. Of course that's part of it. Of course miracles we are to expect. But what are they? They're signposts. If you found a sign leaving Jordan here that said Minneapolis 30 miles, you wouldn't stop at the sign and say, oh, we're in Minneapolis. That's this issue with the kingdom. The kingdom's not here. The king is still extending mercy to people. He killed his son. God killed his son for us. And he's waiting for the world to look on his son. Because he doesn't want to strike people with vengeance. He doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't desire the death of the wicked. But because the wicked are so wicked, they will perish. 
And then God's justice and mercy will be vindicated on that day. Nobody will be with excuse. All the secrets of our hearts will be laid bare. Every man's secrets will be laid bare. That should cause us to tremble a bit. Not only for ourselves, but for all those that we know don't know the Lord. And for all our brothers and sisters who were to do what? To provoke to love and good deeds. It's more and more as you see the day approaching. The day approaching. There is a day approaching. The Hebrews would think of time like a conveyor belt. God sovereignly was bringing things down the conveyor belt of, of life. God was very much in time. Very much on a throne. Very much involved in people's life. Not outside of time. God doesn't dwell outside of time. He's the author of it. He lives and finds his home in it. He sits on the circle of the earth and the inhabitants are grasshoppers. He's involved. He's got a plan. And coming down that conveyor belt is this thing called the day. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. There's today, and don't harden your heart, and there's that day. You don't want to have hardened your heart. There's today, soften your heart, respond to the Holy Spirit, be His companion. The Holy Spirit wants you to be His companion. The sons of God are led by the Spirit. I want to find out how to be a companion of the Holy Spirit. He's the ultimate pilgrim. The Holy Spirit. God is searching the earth to and fro that He can show Himself strong on behalf of those hearts who are fully His. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate pilgrim. He's looking for a home in a people that are ready to lay their lives down. That's His only comfortable place. Jesus found it at Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The Holy Spirit is looking for a people who He can call His home in this age. We can gather for the harvest in the age to come. Our only hope to endure to the end is to understand the purpose of the Holy Spirit. And He's, a, he's to cause us to walk in righteousness, right? To be obedience of the law, Romans 8. He's to provoke us to preach the gospel, to provoke us to love, to fill our hearts with love. He's to cause us to embrace suffering in light of the reward of the age to come. Suffer hardship according to the power of God. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, after he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of speech, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I didn't come as the Greek philosophers that were common in Corinth. I came as a man knowing one thing. Yeshua, Messiah, was crucified. God died for us in His Son. I came knowing that God came low to see the things in heaven and on earth. That God met us in our lowest state and took on full humanity for us. I came knowing that. That caused me to be very low. That God would come into the miry clay in Jesus. You know that in Psalm 48? He pulled me out of the miry clay. You know whose words those are? Jesus. Yeah, David wrote it. But it's Messiah. He got into the miry clay. Because the next couple of verses, it's my delight to do your law. It's in my heart. You've given me a body. Some translations say an ear, but a body is what the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament says, more accurate. You gave me a body. What did Jesus always say about burnt offerings and sacrifice? I don't delight in them. 
I delight in mercy. If we don't see the sacrifices to speak of God's mercy, we're doing it for self-righteous purposes. That's what Jesus was doing with the Pharisees, and he's doing with all humanities. He's confronting any hope of self-righteousness, any hope of attainment, of performance, of status, of class. Anything. The day of the Lord is going to humble everything. Because Jesus already did it on the cross. Can you even imagine that? God's day of vengeance will be so rightly so. Because in His Son, He condescended. He came as low as possible. He completely took on weak frame. He resisted all sin to the point of death. And obeyed to give us His obedience. And if we turn that gift down, we deserve the lake of fire. We deserve the day of His wrath. He's so good. And Peter says, His salvation, His patience is salvation. His patience is salvation. It really is. Paul goes on and he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear. Fear of the Lord, obviously. Trembling. And in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In other words, I had nothing in me, and the only reason that I made it anywhere was because the Spirit was sustaining me. I'm exhibit A. I'm so weak. So anything you saw, that was the Holy Spirit. You notice that? When people do something, some kind of work of God, whether it's you know prayer or, or healing or uh, preaching or teaching or something, witnessing, it's the Spirit of God. You know why it's so hard for 95% of people to be a, a good witness? It's because they're trying to preach themselves and not Jesus as Lord. They're trying to have a good strategy and not be weak and let the Holy Spirit Strengthen them to be a witness. Jesus said that of the Holy Spirit. He said, I'll send him and he'll bear witness of me. And you'll, be where, you'll bear witness because you've been with me. Abiding in the vine. And you'll get what? Prayers answered. You'll bear much fruit. You'll bear witness. And you'll be hated. The hated piece is in... Verse 20, we miss that. We usually get, abide in the vine, you'll bear much fruit, and you get your prayers answered, and that's all the further we go. But if you go a little further, and you realize that you'll be hated by the world, and you'll bear witness, ah, it's called apostolic cruciform. Big words, but all that means is what Jesus passed on to the apostles was cruciform lifestyle. You are a witness. You are a martyr. Whether you get martyred or you just faithfully witness, either way, you're ready to be martyred. Because if Jesus really displayed Himself on the cross as God and died for us, that's just the most obvious ends for us to follow is that we'd be willing to do the same thing. He gave His life for us. We'll be willing to give ours. And that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That same Spirit that answered to the blood of the Son of God, that same Spirit will resurrect bodies. That same Spirit will give us a witness in this age of the resurrection. Because even the resurrection, in tandem with the kingdom, is both negative and positive, right? The kingdom is negative because it's a king coming with wrath on his enemies. But it's positive because his rule is good over people who've received his mercy. The resurrection is great because what it does is it gives these bodies perfection again. We don't have to waste away day by day anymore and just be renewed inwardly. We'll be renewed completely forever. And then the earth will be what it's supposed to be. Enjoyable. All the things we want earth to be. Minus the things that we don't. But the resurrection for the wicked is still a resurrection. 
And that's torment to consider the resurrection of the wicked, John 5, 29. That there is a resurrection of the wicked. And if these tangible realities are in our gospel message with clarity and simplicity and humility, then there's going to be fruit. If there really is a day of the Lord coming, there really is a resurrection coming, and there's a restored earth coming. There were pilgrims in this age. This age is not our home. But we can speak to this age, even to the ones that are blinded. We can speak to this age, even if our gospel is blinded. Even if it is. We have this mercy in jars of clay. We behold Him with unveiled faces. We proclaim Him as Lord. And He'll open eyes. Even if this gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Even if it is. Paul says, we are the aroma of life to life and death to death. If we can embrace the beauty of Jesus as our portion as believers. In other words, in the place of prayer, we're seeing the face of Jesus. We're seeing the beauty of Jesus. We're enamored with this exalted King. When we approach prayer, we're in awe of Him. We we express adoration to Him. We live in that beautiful humility before people. They'll see the face of Jesus. And they'll turn to the Lord. And that beauty comes in the way of meekness. And that that meekness, people say, is not weakness. Yeah, it's not despised weakness. But it's embraced weakness. In the right manner. Weakness is always being brought up in the New Testament. First and Second Corinthians, Romans 8, we don't know how to pray. But in our weakness, the Holy Spirit gives us groanings that words can't express. Then he goes on to say, to show us the will of God in prayer. And what is the will of God? That He's going to work everything together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. What's His purpose? To be conformed to the image of His Son. Ah, another place where it says conformed, it's conformed to His death through fellowship with sufferings. Philippians 3. Not finding righteousness in myself. You see that? Paul says, I don't want righteousness in myself. So I embrace the cup and the baptism of suffering that Jesus said James and John indeed indeed would drink and endure. He embraces it, and he embraces the resurrection to come, that he might attain to the resurrection, not having a righteousness in his own by observing the law, but by faith which comes from Jesus, the Messiah. He presses on to lay hold of that resurrection for which Jesus, by His Spirit, already laid hold of Him to attain to. Because then He closes the chapter about the prize with, He'll take this humble state of our body and transform it to the glory of His own body by the power which He has to bring everything in subjection to Himself. He wants to bring everything in subjection to Himself. But He wants willing vessels that will be crushed so that His aroma can come out. He's calling us to propagate our life for Him just like He propitiated for us, just like He atoned for us. Now, that's given to us as a gift. But also, to suffer as a gift. Philippians 1.29 It's been granted to you, charisomai. Right, Carissa? Grace. It's been gifted to you, not only to believe in Messiah for righteousness, on faith by what He did, but to suffer for His sake. Gentiles. Philippians was written more to Gentiles. He wasn't just writing to the first century apostles or the Jewish people who we we would agree, yeah, they're called to suffer. He was writing to Gentiles in Philippi. It's been a gift given to you from Messiah that you would suffer. That your self-righteousness would be pounded away at. That you would delight in God's mercy. It's really what it's about. So this work of the Holy Spirit 
this demonstration of the Spirit and power for witness, etc., Paul says, Yet we do speak wisdom, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 2, but not like the Gnostics is what he's saying. Not this elite superior knowledge that alienates the common goer. But we do speak a wisdom among the mature, he says. A wisdom, however, not of this age. Not of this age. Nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. He purposely used the word mystery because they were thinking themselves the mystery religion, Gnostics, as a, a secret, a dark secret. Paul, whenever he speaks of mystery, he talks about something that was concealed in the Old Covenant, now revealed in the New Covenant, open for all to understand if they're willing to obey. But if you're not willing to obey, you won't understand. And here's the mystery. He says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they'd understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would not have crucified Him. They didn't realize that His success, that Jesus' glorification was in His crucifixion. Jesus was glorified when He hung on the cross. John 12 says, I be lifted up. Son of man, it's time to be glorified. And if I be lifted up on this cross, all men will be drawn to me. God gets glory through the humiliation of His Son. How else would He win us hardened human beings who still want to boast in our righteousness? Unless He could display His Son as the only righteous one. The only one found worthy. The Lord of glory hanging on a tree, crucified for us. So he says, But just as it is written, again, he's hammering away at Gnosticism and says, Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, he's quoting Isaiah 64, all that God has prepared for those who love him. All that God has prepared for those who love him few verses back in Isaiah 64, they're crying out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Who are they calling for but their Messiah? That smoke of your, you'd smoke your enemies with fire and like the pot that's going to burn with branches under it, etc. So, then he says, verse 10, For to us God revealed to them, revealed them through the Spirit, or but to us, in the NIV, the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Even the depths of God. The depths of God is this mystery of Him being crucified. That God will be crucified to win His creation back to Him. See, the fall was so bad. The fall of humanity. Sin is so depraving to us, to our nature, that the only way that humanity could really be won back to God, to His design, was through the cross. That God would go to the depth of the miry clay for us and pull us out. Somebody told a story once of uh, Confucius, Buddha, and Jesus. And Confucius came up to a pit where a man had fallen in and he lectured him and reprimanded him and left. Buddha came up to that same man and saw him down in the pit and he gave him a lecture and reprimanded him and then he reached his stubby little arms down to try to help the guy out of the pit. When it failed, he left. Jesus came up to the man in the pit, didn't say a word, got down into the pit, picked the man up on his shoulders and climbed him out of the pit. Guys, God's gentleness is amazing. It's stunning. It's brilliant. He knows how to win our heart. He knows how to save us. Because we don't. His righteousness, His mercy, His faithfulness and truth endure to all ages. 
Are we able to let Him humble us in this age? That we have His Spirit strengthen us to persevere to the end. We need His Spirit so we can persevere to the end. The Holy Spirit showed us these things that are to come. He's the pledge. He's the first fruits. He's the foretaste of what's to come. He's the good deposit until our full inheritance. He's the first fruits until the redemption of our body. He's to provoke us to walk in the way of righteousness, to lay aside slander and hypocrisy, to lay aside fears, to lay aside all things that would hinder being a pure witness in the earth. The Holy Spirit indeed is the witness himself. He is what sets us apart. He is who conforms us to what God's like, produces fruit for the day of Jesus Christ. And he is the one that calls us to, strengthens us in, and forms us in Jesus' image through suffering. And suffering is God's greatest expression of his plan of redemption through Jesus and not through us. As we learn to suffer in this age, we set our hope on his return. When Paul warned the Galatians of not being circumcised by the zealous Jews that were misled that they needed to add to the gospel, he said to them, stand firm. And don't be yoked by a yoke of slavery. It's usually coming into our deliverance ministries and our inner healing ministries out of context and it completely misses the the weight of what he's saying when it's quoted out of context. He's talking about self-righteousness. And he says, stand firm and don't be yoked with the yoke of slavery. I don't know why I'm not just reading it. We'll close with, with this. He says, don't be yoked again with the yoke of, of slavery. But keep standing firm and do not be subject again to it. Galatians 5.2 Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision. He's under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Wow, talk about an anchor and a setting of our hope. A setting, a looking away from ourself and from this age to a promise. We, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness in the resurrection. The place where righteousness dwells forever, the new earth, the new heavens. We're waiting for it. By the Spirit, we have the seal of the righteousness by faith. Circumcision was a seal of righteousness by faith that Abraham had before the law, before circumcision. The Spirit is a sign of the covenant of what we have by the Spirit's deposit before the resurrection. But it points ahead. So the Spirit causes us to long and groan for our full inheritance that God's going to give us in the resurrection. Meaning that we endure and are faithful to the end. And the only way we can be faithful to the end is if we put our faith completely in His righteousness. And what the Holy Spirit does is through afflictions, He works in us a eternal weight of glory in the resurrection. He, he works in us true righteousness given from God. He works in us love and meekness and resistance to sin. And He works in us a harvest of righteousness for the age to come. And He works in us a, an effective witness to the unbelieving blind world. So the Holy Spirit We really want to be led by Him. Because He is the Spirit of adoption. 
He is the spirit of sonship. He is the spirit that will place us as sons in the resurrection. That's what it actually means. The, the uyothesia, the, the spirit of adoption, is the spirit of son placing. Uyos is sons, mature, full sons with an inheritance. Uyothesia is the spirit that will place us there. And Jesus said that the peacemakers are the sons of God. They'll be called sons of God in the resurrection, sons of the resurrection. And when he wipes away every tear and passes the order of all these things and brings us into the new order where there's no more tears, pain, etc., and gives us living water forever and manna and a new name that nobody knows but he himself will share with us, when all those promises are fulfilled, we'll sit down on the throne next to him and he'll call us sons and daughters. Sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Amen?